morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded few in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Misery Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Wednesday, November 8th, we're studying Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 to 29. In today's text, the author of Hebrews proclaims that we are not those who have come with Moses to Mount Sinai, which dare not be touched, but we are those who have come with Jesus to the church, where we have access to God. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Sean Kilgo. Pastor Kilgo serves at Redeemer Lutheran Church in Lawrence, Kansas. Pastor Kilgo, welcome back to Sharper Iron. It's good to be back. Talk to us about the book of Hebrews, Pastor Kilgo. We're all dying to know who wrote it after this many studies here. Um, so I'm going to be the guy that says the thing that nobody else has said, because that's just kind of how I am, uh, the Apostle John. You're not the first one to tell me that. Oh, no. Okay, yeah, well. You're not. So I guess I'm not alone, though. You're not alone. Um, you're not alone. No, I mean, we don't really know, right? That's I mean, right. and so I there, there's yeah, there's like, there's a big uh, um, uh, kind of debate around this. And one of the things I appreciate in our circles is we we don't make a really big deal about it so we can get just kind of have fun with it. You know, there's a few options that are pretty good. Uh, St. Paul and Peter are good options. There's... Uh, Clement is a good option. Um, I think St. John the Apostle is actually a very good option. Uh, one of the things I've told people is if you read uh, the Gospel of John, his epistles, the book of Revelation, and you just read them in successive order, and then you read the book of Hebrews, you just you see so much overlap with the stuff, and especially theologically, what's going on there, uh, and how St. John is so good at connecting you to the Old Testament. Um, and, and not in overt ways, like he, he just kind of implicitly implies the stuff. And we, we get that like in this text here. Um, so I don't know, I, I say, uh, St. John partially to be contrarian, but also because I do think that there's uh, a decent possibility of it, but regardless, so, we do right, know more, that it is part important. of the canon. That's right. More important than um, that, talk to us about the the letter, the sermon, as we've, we've called it many right. times and where we've been, what we need to know for this part of chapter 12. Yeah, so uh, like you said, this is a sermon as far as we can tell. It's one of the reasons why it is unique within the canon. Um, the other things, like the the epistles, those are letters. That's what epistle means. Or they're the gospels. Um, and so this is, as far as genre, just a unique writing. And part of the reason why it sounds different is because of that genre difference. And uh, one of the very cool things about it then is being a sermon that is part of the canon, that it is divinely inspired, we can see kind of a, a uh, proper and godly way to exegete the scriptures, to speak of Christ, to connect the Old Testament, the New Testament to one another, all these sorts of things. And you can see how he builds, there's a couple of general arguments that he's building throughout the epistle. And all of that really comes to a head in this text. This really is the, the culmination of the sermon. Uh, chapter 13 ends up being more of like concluding exhortation. This text uh, through the end of chapter 12 is really the, 
the culmination of all the arguments that he's been making, uh, particularly of the incarnation of Jesus and are drawing near to that reality, are being placed into Christ, are being redeemed by his blood, which is the blood of the new covenant instead of the blood of uh, bulls and goats. All, all these things just kind of come to a head and uh, and results in the uh, the the assembly, uh, what what the assembly looks like, yeah. and what it's gathering around. Yeah, yeah. All right. So we get the culmination, the climax of this sermon in our text today. This is Hebrews chapter twelve, beginning at verse eighteen. For you have not come to what may be touched a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Sinai, excuse me, to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship, with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. That's our text for today. That's Hebrews 12, verses 18 to 29. All right, Pastor Kogo, so he he references the Old Testament here at the beginning of our section, talking about you've not come to what may be touched, and he starts listing things like blazing fire, darkness, gloom, etc. What's the Old Testament reference he's, he's taking us to here? Yeah, so you've got um, kind of parallel references uh, in Deuteronomy and Exodus, um, and this is the people coming to the mountain of Sinai uh, prior to the giving of the Ten Commandments, and the Lord is there at Sinai uh, with uh, the the pillar of fire um, and the pillar of cloud and smoke upon the mountain, and as the Lord speaks from the mountain, from the cloud, uh, the entire earth and the mountain and everything is shaking. And so this is the the scene that is happening in Exodus 19 and 20, uh, Deuteronomy 4, I believe it is, is the parallel. And uh, this is what's being referenced here. So what, what he's talking about is, you've not come to uh, Mount Sinai in the way that the Israelites did. You're coming to something else. Um, and so what what's kind of interesting is, uh, maybe, maybe while I'm thinking about this, just to point this out, there there are kind of four sections to this text. Um, the first section is you've not come to these things, and there's seven things that are listed. And then at verse 22, you get the next section, but you have come to Mount Zion, and it lists seven things here. 
Um, and then in verse uh, 25, uh, you get the next section, um, the uh, kind of product of that, what you, how you should be acting on account of that. And then the culmination, uh, 28 and 29, therefore let us be grateful. So there's these kind of four distinct uh, sections that they're all together, but they're all making slightly different arguments. So this one is uh, what you are not, uh, how you are not engaging God, basically, um, in the way that the Israelites did uh, with Moses and Sinai, which is a good thing. Like we don't, and maybe it's something to remember when this happens in the Old Testament, the Israelites make the request of God for him to not speak to them from the mountain, but that Moses would speak as the mediator. And God makes the note later on in commenting on this event that the Israelites made a good request. Yeah, That, that, was, a, that was a proper request that God would not speak directly to them but that Moses would. And what's what's kind of fascinating is uh, this is the only time uh, in the entirety of the scriptures um, that God speaks to the entire assembly. Uh, mm -hmm. Essentially, I mean, he's the, the text says he speaks face to face, but speaks directly to the entire assembly of Israel. Um, normally, he's speaking either to a group or he's speaking through a mediator like Moses. Um, so this this is a very important event in the life of Israel and does get referenced a whole bunch of times, including here. Um, but that, that speaking of God directly is very unique. It only happens this one time and it's not something that we should actually be desiring right now. It's something that we look forward to in the resurrection, but right now for us to encounter God in that way, um, is, uh, to, uh, basically to be destroyed because we, we cannot handle uh, the unmediated God. Yeah. The, the reaction that the writer describes here, he talks about, you know, they could not endure what was given. They, even Moses said, I tremble with fear certainly mm -hmm. stands in, in contrast to the way the writer has talked several times previously in this sermon about drawing near to the throne of God with confidence and with boldness. Here you see that, the way that he came on Mount Sinai was not in a way that they could draw near with that kind of confidence. Uh, whereas, again, and just to just to kind of help see how it connects to previous parts of the the letter, mm -hmm. that I mean, that's that's not what was happening on Mount Sinai. Yeah. No, well, and I mean, it's actually interesting. So you you made this reference. Um, Let us have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. This is one of the culminations of that argument. But right after that, you actually have this language showing up. Um, concerning sin, right? So if we go on sinning deliberately after right. receiving knowledge of the truth, there no longer makes a sacrifice. And as you get to the end of that argument, um, he says, uh, uh, for we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. And that, specifically that judge language comes up in here. Um, and then he makes this note, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, right? You, you need a... You need mediation is the, the point that he's making. And again, that uh, it comes to a head in this text. There is a mediator um, and it's not quite what you expect either, but we're not, you know, we're not quite there yet. So sure. In, in this first section, you said there's the seven things listed in terms of, of what's there. What, what should we notice about those things that get listed in this particular section? 
yeah so the um the seven uh are the something that may be touched the blazing fire the darkness the gloom the storm cloud the blast of a horn and the voice with utterances so the, these are the um the things that are being listed there and uh what's important to note is that this is all described as um the things that may be touched right um and what what's kind of fascinating about that is that uh in i think it's in deuteronomy or or exodus one of the texts that that this is referencing it talks about um them uh seeing god uh with his uh in his voice um seeing god speak to them i think is the uh the particular language and so um uh i'm not finding it um that's all right keep going but anyway so uh the uh the big point here is that there is a concealing of god uh in these things if you kind of look at the what's the general theme of this you've got the mountain there but you can't actually go up and touch it um you've got a blazing fire that is concealing and consuming you've got the darkness and the gloom and the cloud that are all concealing and the, there's this description of the darkness that it's it's so dark that you can't see it so um i don't know if anybody's ever seen this there's this um uh black that uh this company has developed using uh carbon fiber uh uh, nano fibers and it's called vanta black and it's the blackest black that we've created and it's it's fascinating because if you it absorbs 99.9 percent .9 of light so if you paint it on something you actually cannot see any definition you can't see any contours in it and there's some videos you can look up if anybody's interesting interested in this where they paint like a um uh the head of a mannequin with this and they rotate it around so you can see its silhouette. And then when it turns towards you, it just looks like an oval. Like you can't see any contour. And it's, wow. um, it, even in a video, I can't imagine what this looks like in real life, but even in a video, it really messes with you because we, we are not used to looking at things that you, you can't see, right? And that's the description of this, this darkness um, that is cons that, that's surrounding the, the mountain um, that, it's so dark that you can't see. You can't see the darkness. It, it's almost like there's just a void sitting there. Um, and then you get the two things that go together at the end. The blast of the horn. This is like a ram's horn, uh, not a trumpet. It's a ram's horn that announces the speaking of the Lord. And then the Lord speaks. So God conceals himself so that the way in which he actually interacts with the people is through his voice. Um, and even that ends up being too much for the people. So they request that that god interact with them through his voice mediated by moses so you get like another layer basically on top of everything else that's been there so that's the um that's this first list that that's going on there that's going to be then contrasted with the the next list of seven uh what we actually do come to 
Yeah, yeah. Well, and just to thinking about that list, the fact that it that it ends with the voice that you know, and the voice whose words, as it says, made the hearers beg that no further messages could be spoken to them. Again, just thinking about where we've been in this letter from the very beginning, thinking about in, in many and various ways, God spoke to the people of old by the prophets. Now, in these last days, He's spoken to us by His Son. So here's an example in the time of the prophets when they were to hear, they had the voice of God, but they couldn't bear it. And now for us, again, just to kind of think about where we're headed here, uh, we have the voice of God and we can hear it because he speaks to us through his son. Right. Well, and and this is, um, I, I don't know a good time to bring this up, but you you get in both right of now. these, that this language of drawing near. Um, we have not come to or drawn near to what may be touched, um, but we have come or drawn near to Mount Zion. And what is really, really interesting in this is how this uh, language, this particular word for draw near, uh, gets used in uh, in Hebrews. Uh, so it's a fairly common uh, word, but it only gets used a handful of times in Hebrews, and it's always very important. So you get in Hebrews 4, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And then in Hebrews 7, uh, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, through Jesus, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And then in Hebrews 10, uh, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things that have come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. So that's starting the argument of you have a better blood uh, in Christ than the sacrifices in here than Abel. And then in 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And then uh, dealing with faith at the beginning of Hebrews 11, uh, without faith, it is impossible to please him for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And then uh, uh, these two texts or the, uh, these two passages in Hebrews 12, you have not come, you have not come near to what may be touched, but you have drawn near to Mount Zion. Right, so th this is, all of those texts have just been building to this point where now finally you have um, what you are specifically drawing near to. It's been alluded to, but yeah. now it's going to be unpacked. Yeah. All right. So let's, let's start unpacking then this list, verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion. So I'm going to try to Mount Zion to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Are those two separate or is that one? That's one. That's uh, one. Mount okay. Zion and the mountain and city of God are the same thing. Okay. All right. Well, you you, you list them. You, you tell okay, me. Okay. So you've got, yeah. um, so Mount Zion, um, is in um, especially in the Old Testament, uh, the mountain of God and the city of God are one. And particularly there's the promise that their um, eschatological reality is as a singular thing. So the, the mountain and city of God are one, and then you've got the myriad of angels, that's two. The assembly of the firstborn, that's three. The judge, uh, that's four. The spirits of the righteous made perfect, that's five. The mediator of a new coven, namely Jesus, uh, that's six. And then the, the blood for sprinkling, that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel, okay. that's seven. Good. And that that's kind of the shock, is the... You, you you would think that once you get to Jesus, um, the mediator of a new covenant, namely Jesus, that you're stopping and you're not because you're 
continuing on to the manner in which now Jesus is going to interact with you, and that's you through go. the blood. Right, right. So it's not like Jesus is somehow left behind in number seven, but you see specifically how Jesus is going to speak to you now. He's going to come to you through his blood. So let's 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 work our way through this one this list one by one, I think, one one at a time. Can we start sure. with with Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem? Yeah. So this is the um the names and the depiction of um of the eternal city, basically the, the eternal dwelling place where God dwells, where the holy angels dwell, and where we are promised to dwell in the resurrection. And what's what's nice then about this is he says right at the outset, you have come to this. So like in the Old Testament, uh, you have a, a bit of a reflection of this, and this is referenced earlier in Hebrews 2, uh, that uh, earlier in Hebrews as well, not Hebrews 2. But the um, the building of the tabernacle is made in accordance with what Moses has seen mm -hmm. on the mountain. So there is a reflection of the heavenly reality of the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of God uh, on earth in the tabernacle. And that continues then here that what we are drawing near to, uh, what we are gathered around specifically in the divine service, because that's the reference here, is the uh, the final reality that we are getting a glimpse of right now. We're actually being brought into it. And so this will have another reference with the with the angels uh, in the next one. But like this is what we talk about in the divine service, that uh, during the sacrament in the proper preface, we make reference that with angels and archangels, with all the company of heaven, we laud and magnify your glorious name, evermore praising you and saying. So um, our song is being gathered up with the eternal song of not only angels, but the the eternal uh, occupants of the uh, holy city of God. And so we are already participants in that now in the divine service, and we'll get the fullness of that in the life to come. For the time being, um, what he's pointing out is that we've already drawn near to that. We're already at the goal, right? We're just waiting for its culmination. Yeah. The fact that he names Mount Zion particularly here, I think is very helpful for us as we engage into the New Testament, particularly in the Psalms, where Mount Zion shows up in a number of places, so that we understand what that means when we read those Psalms as Christians, for us to go to Mount Zion is not to go to a physical mountain somewhere in the Middle East, but rather to to go to to the place where God comes to dwell among us now. Right. I was just talking to somebody about this the other day. We were talking about, you know, you've got the... Uh the so-called three Abrahamic religions, right? You've got Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. And you've always got these um, uh, these fights over like the the Temple Mount, right? But that generally Christians are never fighting over the Temple Mount, right? It's uh, Judaism and Islam that are fighting over the Temple Mount. And you've got some like uh, some Christians that are doing this for whatever reason, but generally Christendom has not really cared. And the reason for this is that um, our worship of God and our drawing near to God is not now dependent on a specific location. It's really quite wonderful. And you see this in Pentecost, the, the spreading out of the church into all the nations. So for Judaism and Islam, the, um, the highest worship of God uh, takes place at this particular 
physical location, whereas in Christianity, the highest worship of God is in uh, is done by worshiping in spirit and truth, yeah. and that's done anywhere. And so regardless of where you actually are at any given time, um, you can draw near to Zion, um, to the holy mountain of God, uh, by worshiping in spirit and truth. And you don't have, like you said, you don't have to go to a physical mountain. That's why Christians also have generally not concerned themselves with things like pilgrimages, because there's not the 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 holy site is your congregation, your the your place of gathering. That's the holy site. That's right. And I think well, we would do well to actually reclaim that in our minds. Well, and so just to and not to jump too far ahead, but to connect this part of the list to the very end of the list. Then, so if you want to go to Mount Zion, and you, if you want to go up somewhere. Go to your altar. Go go to the right. altar rail because you're probably gonna have to go up a step or two to get there. That's Mount Zion. That's that's where right. you need to go. Yeah, and I mean it's interesting, like how you can see this in the construction of churches. Like a bunch of these realities get reflected in, um, in how churches, especially around the chancel, um, the altar area, get constructed. Yeah. Um, think things like having the um, the half the half circle rail, for example. Um, becomes indicative of that we are there with angels and festal, innumerable angels and festal gathering. Like we're not the only ones gathering around uh, the Lord's altar here. Uh, the Lord's altar has been expanded out into all these different places, but we are coming to that reality here as well. So, I mean, it would be kind of an interesting study to to do and see how much impact the uh, the, the sermon to the Hebrews had on the construction of churches historically. And I would wager that it had a lot of impact on, on how churches actually physically got built. Yeah, yeah. So lots lots for us to, to rejoice in and ponder here from this text in Hebrews 12. We're going to keep looking at it more on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking to Pastor Sean Kilgo this morning. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that an investment with Lutheran Church Extension Fund exclusively supports LCMS ministries and church workers? That's right. LCEF ensures LCMS churches, schools, and organizations have access to the financial resources they need to sustain, strengthen, and start ministry work. In other words, you can feel good investing with LCEF because we share your Lutheran values and love for the church. Learn more at lcef.org. LCF is a nonprofit religious organization. Therefore, LCF investments are not FDIC insured bank deposit accounts. This is not an offer to sell investments or solicitation to buy. LCF will offer and sell its securities only in states where authorized. The offer is made solely by LCF's offering circular. Investors should carefully read the offering circular, which more fully describes associated risks. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Wednesday, November 8th. We're studying Hebrews 12, verses 18 to 29 with Pastor Sean Kilgo. He serves at Redeemer Lutheran Church in Lawrence, Kansas. Pastor Kilgo, we're working through this list, the place where we have come. We talked about Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem. The next one, the innumerable angels in festal gathering. Tell us about the angels. 
Yeah. So this is, um, I mean, it's a different group, but this makes me think of, uh, in the book of revelation where you get the unnumbered multitude coming out of every tribe and language and peoples. Um, and the, the picture then is if you sat and you tried to count, you're, you're not going to be able to, it's simply un, unnumberable for us. That's how many angels are there gathered in worship myriads of angels at one point right yeah you get myriads and myriads of angels um here you've got innumerable angels and what i think is important is that they're in festal gathering um that they are there in joyful worship um that their function their purpose is to be gathered around the throne of god in joyful worship and here i I, I can't help but hear a connection to Luke 15 and the, the parables of the lost and that the angels are described as all the angels rejoice over one sinner who repents. So what exactly is it that the angels are there in, uh, in festal gathering concerning, right? It's not just generically that they're worshiping God. They are certainly doing that. But they are worshiping and taking joy in what God has actually done in Christ, and that is redeemed creation. Uh, because uh, it certainly, it obviously saddens God uh, for creation to have fallen. Uh, creation itself groans. We groan. We are saddened by this. The angels certainly also uh, are saddened by the fall into sin, and so they rightly rejoice, uh, as St. Luke notes uh over the the repentance the the reconciliation of god and man and so i i think that that's what we want to see here is that they're not just there in kind of generic worship that they're there worshiping god and praising him with joy um for this specific reason Absolutely. Yeah. And, and just keep in mind the picture that we've just contrasted all of this to, to the, the trembling and fearful nature of Mount Sinai. Here we've got the joy to be gathered around the throne of God there in the heavenly Jerusalem. The angels are there. Next comes the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Who are these? Yeah. So this is this is really fascinating. So um, this is the those who have gone before us in the faith. I think a good uh, connection would be the, the all the by faiths that we just had, and that this section is predicated on two things. One, since therefore we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, so that would be that. Um, and then we also have a reference to um, uh, there, there's going to be a connection to uh, Esau that solves his birthright, right? So I mean, there there is a, a connection to the to the birthright here, um, to the firstborn, all that sort of stuff. Um, and th- this is specifically didn't come up in the th- third section uh, to not refuse him who's speaking. But um, specifically, I think you've got the connection back into 12.1, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, that th- these are all those that have gone before us in the faith. Now, what's significant, though, is this term, the firstborn. Every Every time that this is used in the New Testament, um, except for two, it's um, singular, and it refers specifically to Christ as the firstborn. So Jesus is the firstborn um, uh, in his birth, uh, shows up in, in the Lucan birth narrative, 
Uh, you also get this as Jesus being the the firstborn of the dead, mm. um, referring to his resurrection. Um, so, uh, and I, one of the important notes with that is that uh, he's not noted as the one born from the dead, but the firstborn from the dead, right. namely that there's going to be more. You're starting a counting of a list that's mm. going to occur. And so we're going to be the others, two, three, four, five, et cetera. Um, in Hebrews, uh, it's only in Hebrews 11 and here that you get this in the plural. Um, and I, well, I think then what we want to see is that it is connecting us specifically to Christ, who is the firstborn and the firstborn of the dead, uh, that we are in him. And those who have gone before us are in him, uh, that that are identity is bound up to Christ himself and that our receiving of the inheritance is bound up to us being the firstborn um, uh, in the same way that all inheritance was. And, and again, this is an Esau sort of connection. So Esau sells his birthright okay. um, for a bowl of soup. And uh, we're obviously encouraged not to do that. But in Christ, we are considered to be firstborn. We are considered to be the inheritors of what belongs to the Father because we're found in Christ. And this is a very strong baptismal reality then, that, that being clothed in Christ means that we are sons of God by faith. Um, yeah. And yeah, so, but... yeah, so, so now when, um, when the Father looks at us, he, he doesn't see us in our sin. He sees his only begotten Son with whom he's well-pleased. Right, so that's why in baptism, when the Lord looks upon us, He smiles and is well pleased uh, because uh, because of His Son, and we are then uh, the the way that like Saint Paul will connect this together is because of that reality, um, what has been kept safely for us, uh, specifically by the Holy Spirit as the kind of the safeguarder of these things, uh, that we are then going to inherit what belongs to the father when we come into our eternal glory, right? So his, his eternal inheritance belongs to us de facto because we are the firstborn, right? Yeah. And, and it's an interesting thing because then firstborn becomes plural here. So it's all the firstborns, but that, that I mean, it's not the way the word works. It's a weird, right. Um, right. It's, it's a weird version of the, of the word. You wouldn't expect it to be plural and it, and it brings, it highlights that reality that there's a, um, even though it doesn't destroy our individual individuality and our uniqueness as individual creations of God, that in Christ we are one, that we are equal to one another. We're all the firstborn, just as he is. Yeah. So. yeah. Now, now all, all those things you were saying about the baptismal connections here the, and the way that God looks at us now because we are covered in Christ— that that then means that the next thing in the list isn't a scary thing. So when we we now come to God, who is the judge of all, this is no longer a frightening thing as it might have been on Mount Sinai. Right, and this is this is such an important thing to understand when we talk about God as judge. And I and I think we just miss this when we're like confessing the creed. We confess this uh, every divine service, regardless of which creed you're using. That um, that we are. Uh, that Jesus is the one who is going to return to judge the living and the dead. We are looking forward to the day in which Jesus returns to judge us, right? 
Um, the, the question is what the declaration of that judgment is going to be. That's what makes it either a good judgment or a bad judgment. So are you judged to be guilty? Or are you judged to be not guilty? And so because we, because we are clothed with Christ in our baptism, because we have been brought to the fullness of the faith, um, we are judged to be not guilty because, again, the, the father doesn't see our sin. He sees his son with whom he's well-pleased. And that, that's such an important reality to understand in our, uh, in our baptism. Uh, and that then, like you said, it makes this a, a joyful reality to come before the judge because you already know what the verdict's going to be. I come before the Father not wondering, am I going to be judged guilty or not guilty? I know what it's going to be. He's going to say, not guilty because of the blood of Christ. Yeah. And this is one of the things that kind of drives me a little bit batty as a, as a, as a pastor is like so often we get uh, people who are uncertain of their uh, of their salvation, um, and so, like you can ask people this question: um, If you die today, are you going to be with the Lord in eternity? And they'll say, "I hope so." You're like, "Well, what do you mean you hope so?" I'm like, well, "Well, I hope so. I hope I've done enough good things or something like this." Like they they start kind of internally. Uh, introspecting themselves instead of pointing to the baptismal reality, to the absolution, to the Lord's Supper, to these external physical things that that we have actually come to, as uh, the the preacher here says, that we've come to these things and we therefore know already what the verdict is because we've already heard it. Like every time you hear the absolution, you're hearing the verdict. Every time you receive the Lord's Supper, you're hearing the verdict. You've heard the verdict in your baptism. Um, you're hearing it proclaimed in the in the gospel. So. Uh, we, we really need to do a better job wrapping our minds around this and uh, having a a comforted conscience. Uh, and this is this is then what's what's going to uh, come up uh, in a little bit. Um, uh, in chapter thirteen, he's going to do this where he says, um, uh, "The Lord is my helper." Or, um, no, sorry. Uh, for he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So we can confidently say, we can say with full assurance, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what command do to me. And you get this earlier with the drawing near. Uh, let us draw near with a full assurance of faith, full confidence. And this is one of the things that the Reformation really ends up driving at is that we have assurance of who we are in Christ before God. We have assurance that God as our judge is not going to judge us guilty um, because we have Christ. Now, apart from faith, he will judge you guilty, and that's going to be kind of the, the third part of this text. But so we don't want to say just, you know, baptism is some like magic formula. You get baptized, you do whatever. That's very clear. Like he pushes back against that sort of idea in here. St. Paul does the same. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. Um, but there is a certainty that we should have, especially when our sins uh, creep up on us and want to uh, burden our conscience so that we would actually be able to confidently say, the Lord is my helper. Uh, the Lord is my just judge who has decreed me not guilty, not uh, the, the one of whom I, like Moses, are going to say, I tremble with fear. Okay. 
That's good. I'm going to keep us moving, Pastor Kilgore, so we don't run out of time to get to the second, oh, the second half of the text. We're going to run out of time. No, I know. We always do. But so just help us into the—I want to get especially to the way that we get to Jesus, but then also the blood. So talk to us about the spirits briefly, and then move us into those last two, Jesus, but then the blood. Okay, so the spirits of the righteous made perfect. This is going to be this continuation of like the baptismal reality, that you've been made perfect in your baptism. You're not perfect because you actually— perfectly kept the law. You're perfect because that perfection of Jesus has been decreed to you. This is uh, John 15, that the Holy Spirit will take what is mine and declare it or bestow it upon you. So you have what belongs to Jesus because you are clothed with Jesus in your baptism and you have that by faith. Um, And then uh, we are, um, and I think by this time, you just have to remember all these ands that are in here are connecting you back to the initial thing. Um, you have drawn near to this and you have drawn near to this. So we're still doing that. And you have drawn near to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant or, or a new uh, testament, right? And this, this is this language um, uh, previously uh, where like without a, uh, without a death, uh, a will is not enacted. Right. So it, it takes the death of Jesus to enact his will. This is the whole language of the, the new covenant or the new testament. Um, that that is the language of a will. So the last will and testament of somebody is something that's enacted after their death. So we draw near to Jesus, who is the mediator, the one who is speaking to us, um, so that we don't encounter this God of Sinai uh face to face and get destroyed. He's still veiling himself. He's still mediating himself, but now he's mediating not through the voice of Moses. Um, and this is not to say Moses doesn't preach the gospel. That's a misnomer. Moses definitely preaches the gospel, right. uh, but he's mediating through himself in Christ. So this is the flesh of Jesus. He puts on flesh and blood so that he would mediate himself so that we would actually hear him speak to us specifically to speak to us that there is a new will that is enacted in his death. This is the 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 new the new covenant um, that, that he's talking about here, and to the 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 blood for the sprinkling. That uh, Kleining makes us note that the way this gets translated in the ESV is a little bit odd. Um, that it's that we're drawing near to the blood that is for sprinkling. It's not sprinkled blood. It's blood that is for sprinkling, um, which speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Um, so there's an emphasis on not the sprinkling, but on the blood itself, the way that gets constructed. And that that's what's important there. So again, you would expect that you would stop with Jesus, but you don't stop with Jesus because somehow Jesus needs to get applied to you. Um, and the way that he does that is through the sprinkling of his blood. And that occurs in a variety of ways that occurs in your baptism, that occurs in the absolution, that occurs almost literally in the Lord's Supper, you're not being sprinkled, you're receiving it into your mouth. Um, but the the way in which uh, the Lord deals with us now is through the blood of Jesus, which is why the book of Hebrews is just kind of almost obsessively talking about the blood of Jesus kind of throughout. If you just do kind of a search for blood in the book of Hebrews, it's just kind of constantly coming up. And this is its culmination. This is actually the last time it gets brought up. Wow. So that's how you can tell, like, this is this is it. Um, it's not, or sorry, no, it does show up in 13. Uh, so ignore that. Um, 
but it's still a climax that this is the climax of the argument yeah. um so this is the blood that speaks a better word than the blood of abel so whereas abel's blood um cries out to god for vengeance this blood cries out to god for forgiveness that yeah. that's the distinction because specifically in hebrew or in uh, genesis uh uh when when uh cain kills abel yep. um uh, god says that the blood of your brother is crying out to me from the ground and so now there's a new blood that is crying out to god but it's not crying out for god to take vengeance it's crying out for god to have mercy and that's that's the culmination now um and you see this there, there's a great text in um in our hymnody uh with um baptism specifically um where um it actually shows up a few different places but the one that always strikes me is um luther's baptismal hymn mm -hmm. to jordan came the christ our lord um all that the mortal eye behold is water as we pour it before the eye of faith unfolds the power of jesus merit for here it sees the crimson flood to all our ills bring healing the wonders of his precious blood the love of god revealing assuring his own pardon so all that stuff like the assurance of our salvation and the sprinkling of blood is all in there i think gerhardt's uh baptismal hymn does this as well talks about the sprinkling of blood um and then you've got um uh one of the lenten hymns um uh draws on this yep. um glory be to jesus yep. um uh specifically makes the the parallel between or the contrast between the blood of abel and the blood of jesus here and i don't, I don't have that text memorized off the top it's of my head abel's but. blood for vengeance pleaded to the skies but the blood of jesus for our pardon cries See, that's kind of what I said. So yep, I'm glad right. that me and the Look hymn agree. You. Look at you. Yeah, that's right. Uh, you just didn't say it poetically, but you. I you didn't say it poetically. It. I don't that's say right. very many things poetically, though, unless I'm quoting a hymn. So it's Good. all right. All right. So, Pastor Google, there's so much there. We we could have spent the whole time on just those seven things. Let's let's finish this text, though. We've got about nine minutes here, just for your reference. Okay. Okay. So you, you said there's two more sections here in verses 25 through 29. I think you put 25 to 27 together as yeah. the first and yep. 28 and 29 as the second. So take us into that next section, okay, so, 25 to 27. So 25 to 27, this is the um, the the warning, uh, therefore see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. So this is the, the contrast between... Um, God on Sinai warning the people um, as this is going to have like the reference back to um, if even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Like there's a kind of a reference going on with that. Um, and now we have the the warning from the the speaking from heaven, namely the speaking of the son and the speaking of the blood of Christ that um, there's a in similarly to previous um, uh, sections where in Hebrews that it talks about um, departing uh, from the faith uh, after being sanctified in the truth or covered with the blood of Christ. The, these things, if if you have received these things, then um, departing from that uh, is the cause, should be the cause of great terror uh, for us. So the same thing here, to, to not listen, um, to not listen to God at Sinai was bad enough. And, and they, they could not escape from that much less will we escape if we don't listen to Jesus. That, that's the point that he's making here. So to, um, to not listen uh, to, um, to not listen to Christ 
uh, or we should say it maybe this way, to reject the words of Christ is to reject Christ himself. So the warning that is in here um, is that we would not reject what God is speaking to us in both veins. So we don't want to reject God's preaching of the law because that is important for us to instruct us in holy living. We also don't want to reject the preaching of the gospel because that is what's actually delivering our salvation. So I think both things are in view here. And this is where you you almost get a sense of the the conclusion of the commandments or the the um uh the the summary uh text that is right after the first commandment. Um God threatens to punish all who break these commandments so we should fear him and not do anything against them, but God also promises grace and every blessing so we should love him uh and trust in him. So this the first section, this first set of eight, seven things is instructing us in why we should be afraid of God, because we should, we should, and that's going to be at the very end of this. But the next section is also instructing us on why we should love and trust in God and that these things hold together in what he's saying to us. And so we don't reject any of it. We, we hold all of it together because that is actually what's going to guide us in this life until the life to come. Hmm. All right, so help us into that last section. We can come back and pick up any points with time we've got left over. We've got about five minutes for verses 28 and 29. Okay, so uh, the, the last section, therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Um, and this is, this is really wonderful. So you get the specific instructions for worship here. This is one of the places where the Lord instructs us on what is our worship to look like in the New Testament? So obviously we don't have the Levitical mandates any longer, but we do have kind of more broad uh, exhortations on what this is to look like. And this is one of them. So one, I think that we miss is right at the beginning. Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So the first aspect of our of our worship, the, the structure of our worship is gratefulness, thankfulness. And you, and you see this uh, in how the liturgy takes shape is God gives us things in the divine service and in the liturgy, and our response is in thanks and praise, that we say thank you for what the Lord has given to us, and that takes a variety of different forms. Sometimes it's literally saying thank you, like in the thanksgiving, thank the Lord and sing his praise, etc., right? Um, or in, um, uh, uh, in the Gloria, right? That that's us giving thanks and praise to God for the for the absolution, for example. So um, so you get that, and what we are recognizing that's being given to us, and why we have so much thanksgiving is a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So previously, right before this, um, uh, the preacher talks about God uh, uh, shaking shaking things up, basically, and the picture then is you've got. When you're doing that, you're kind of removing all the um, all the loose bits. Um, it's kind of like if you're um, uh, if you're carving something and you kind of brush off all the all the loose pieces of wood so that you get the the actual structure that's sitting there. Uh, so this is the picture that you've got the kingdom of God that cannot be shaken, it cannot be destroyed, and it's sitting there. And so the Lord on the last day is kind of brushing all the other dross and everything off. Uh, similar to in First uh, Corinthians, where he talks about um, on the last day, um, all things being consumed by fire. 
um so that the wood and the straw and whatnot are consumed, but the gold and the jewels and all these things remain. So there's things that are good and precious and enduring that are there already right now. And the Lord is revealing all of this in its fullness. Um, and that's the things that cannot be shaken. And that's what's already being given to us, going back to the beginning, that we already have these things. So um, so we are grateful for that. We, we give thanks. And we then offer to God acceptable worship, which we don't have enough time for this, but um, maybe just to make the point, this is implying that there is unacceptable worship. Yeah. And I think that's really important for people to remember. There is a way to worship God that is not acceptable. Um, and that's not being mean. That's just recognizing what the Lord says about worship in the scriptures. Um, and particularly here, it's with reverence and awe. And these words are a little bit misleading in English. Uh, reverence uh, would be um, like God-fearing would be the way that this used to be translated. Um, so like Simeon is talked about being devout. Um, this is the word for devout, basically. Um, but it's um, Simeon is a God-fearing man, right? So um, the the... The reference to this is um, uh, fear, kind of having a, a general fear of God. And then awe, interestingly, also has a connection to uh, fearing God, but um, specifically through the, the desire to uphold the commandments of God. So this is going to be these two things that were previous. So one, we don't want to uh, disobey the commandments. And remembering that's the context of Sinai that's being referenced in all of this but also that we delight in the commandments as the new man, it, as uh, Christ has um, been given to us. And so this, this reverence and awe um, uh, kind of builds all of that up. And because, what's the reason for that? Our God is a consuming fire. Uh, and fire does a number of things. Uh, it, it makes things beautiful. Um, it reveals the, the true things that are there. It has all of these different uses, but one of the things that it does, um, like I mentioned from 1 Corinthians, it removes the dross. It removes all the things that are fading. And so what do we want to build up in our worship, in our lives? We want to build up the things that are enduring. Um, and that's all going to stem from uh, from the Word of God. And especially, this is going to be um, building on the foundation of Jesus, uh, on His Word, on the forgiveness of our sins, on His mercy. These are the things that, that endure and strengthen us to live uh, good and godly lives here in time and there in eternity, as we confess in the Catechism. Pastor Sean Kilgo is pastor at Redeemer Lutheran Church in Lawrence, Kansas. He's been helping us today to study Hebrews 12, verses 18 to 29. Pastor Kilgo, thanks for being our guest today. It was great to be here. You have come to Mount Zion. You have come to the angels in festal gathering, to the firstborn enrolled in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the blood sprinkled, the blood for sprinkling that has been given to you in the sacrament of the altar. Go to your altar this weekend. Go there to Mount Zion and receive the blood of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about Hebrews 12, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It is always a joy to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.